Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, I have for the first time uh, two guests at once. I've not done this before, but it's a fantastic husband and wife duo, and I'm going to give you a quick intro. Uh, we have Ito Utini and her husband, Makia Utini. Ito is an international journalist, a Fulbright scholar, something we both share in common, a human rights activist, accessibility advocate, and author of the forthcoming memoir, Blindness is My Light of Life. She holds an MA in journalism and a strategic media form from the University of Arkansas, Fayetteville, and has practiced print and radio journalism in the U.S. and Morocco, and she has been invited to speak for organizations including Caltech University, Verizon Wireless, and North Seattle College. She has a most incredible story about how she was rendered blind by a family member. We'll talk about that today. Uh, Makia, her husband, is a writer and author of, and co-founder, rather, of The Date Keepers, which is an international media platform. He has earned his MFA in fiction from the University of Arkansas, Fayetteville. I think we have a sense of where they met. In short stories and essays and poems, and they have appeared in outlets such as the Chautauqua Literary Journal, the Michigan Quarterly Review, and Willow Springs. Welcome to The Caring Economy, Ito and Makia. Thanks. Thank you. And I'm excited to um, share our my story as well as where our experience and work with your audience. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Ito. Tell us a little bit about your life story, because it's quite shocking if I'm if I'm honest. Um, but you've certainly made incredible success out of your challenges. Yeah. Um, hello again, everyone. My name is Ito or Ito Otini. I am totally blind. My story is very, very, very long. I'll try to summarize it as much as I can. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I am 34, but it feels like I've lived 3,400 years. <laughs> but I was born and raised in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco in the middle of nowhere with no access to technology, electricity, or running water. Basically nothing. I was taught to take care of animals and clean and cook. Um, and I didn't have access to education. I lost both of my parents. They died when I was very young. Mm -hmm. And I was, um, I had to go from, move from house to house with my family members. They were not uh, really loving and or wanting to have me with them. I started losing my left eye because of glaucoma at a certain age. Mm -hmm. I will get into that, why I didn't know my age at the time. Um, and then when I was in my early teenage years, I moved to my mother's side and I saw my cousins going to school and neighbors. And I, I felt I, I felt really sad because I wanted to go to school and there was no no one was interested in taking me to school and I didn't really know how to do it myself. I, I was just a teenager um, a person from the mountains coming to the small villages. That was a huge upgrade. So it was like, wow, coming from a place where like everyone knows everyone to a place where it's village and there was people from different groups and, and, and different um, backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So 
when I was 17, I was attacked and blinded by a family member and was left in the hospital. I was abandoned by my entire family and I, I ended up um, becoming homeless, which lasted six years um, in Morocco. It was tough, uh, but there were people who supported me all the way. I would say I am now an international journalist and a successful businesswoman, and that's thanks to everyone, specifically individuals who have invested in me. Um, and during those six years of homelessness, I had dreams. All of those dreams come true. I had a dream to go to Miami, just that one was a fun dream while I was reading. <laughs> I had a dream to work for the UN, and I did work for the UN. I had a dream to become a journalist and, and um, go to the US. So all of those dreams have come true. Right. Um, I had to work so hard. Um, in my last year of high school, I was rescued by an American couple and I was no longer homeless. They helped me secure an apartment, go to the American Language Center where I learned English. So, um, and again, another taxi driver told me about the Fulbright program. Of course, a taxi driver who didn't know really what the office is. He just said, oh, I saw foreigners going in and out. Uh, <laughs> do you think I should drop you there? And I was like, yeah, whatever. I was looking for any opportunity. <laughs> and I was in my last year um, in college. And um, I remember I met a an executive director of the Fulbright office back in Morocco who retired that year, actually, um, during my cohort, uh, Dr. James Miller, who, whom I consider like a father figure to me. And I told him my story and I said, I've been struggling and I want to uh, continue my education, get a master's degree in journalism. And that's how I got a lot of support from the Fulbright office from even before I came to the U.S., they helped me with everything, even bringing me to the airport in, in Casablanca in Morocco. Um, so that that I, that was really like the first, Fulbright was the first organization that believed in me and my, my, and supported my dreams and believed that I actually will accomplish what I promised to accomplish, which is something, things that we will go into yeah. Um, yeah. later. But yeah, I was awarded the Fulbright in 2017 uh, to the University of Arkansas, which is, of course, um, where J. William Fulbright, the founder, the Arkansas senator and the founder of, uh, of the Fulbright program, studied and, and lived there and um, found out that later his mother also was a journalist. And it was it was a wonderful uh, time in Fayetteville, Arkansas, not only that I met my best friend at the time, who is my husband now, but my other friends and my American host parents who have been supportive for the last almost six years since I, I landed in the U.S. Wow, awesome. I want to ask you about becoming blind and how one transitions through life. But instead, why don't we stick, let's go to your husband first and get his little overview and how he made his way to uh, the University of Arkansas and then to you. Sure. Okay. So I was uh, born and raised in North Carolina, and I was born in Raleigh. I, I was raised most of my life in Asheville, which is uh, where my parents still live. 
And just a quick aside, but Asheville is in the Appalachian Mountains, as a lot of people probably know. And about 200 million years ago, um, when the continents that we currently think of as Africa and Asia and um, Europe and North America all were connected, uh, the mountain range that is now mostly uh, in North America called the Appalachian Mountain Range, it had some bits of it uh, broke off when those continents split apart and northern end of that chain ended up in Ireland and, and uh, the British Isles and the southern end ended up in Northwest Africa in Morocco. So we're actually, if you go back far enough, we're actually from the same mountains. I love we that. We found that out last year and we were, we were kind of tickled by that. If you go um, back to Tangia, you were one and now you're back. Yeah, exactly. Back. You have to go back a little ways. I like that. And the, and the ranges that were part of it. It's all, it, it's all, um, part of the same range. Uh, my parents both had gone to school for architecture, but neither one of them had ever worked as an architect. They are, both are very hands-on, um, craft-oriented people, and they actually deconstructed and rebuilt their own house while we were living in it. It was a 900-square-foot house, and so I was constantly surrounded by um, sort of a... It, it, was, it was never fully finished when I was living in it, uh, and I did not inherit that hands-on aptitude, there's a story that my father tells that I I don't actually remember, um, but according to him, I, when I was young, I picked up a hammer by the wrong end and I started trying to hit hammer nails with it, and I thought that was how it worked. I have no recollection of this, um, so I can. Became a writer instead. <laughs> far as I'm concerned, there's plausible deniability, but um, even though I didn't inherit that hands-on aptitude, I did inherit the um, perspective of a craftsperson. And I knew that I wanted to be a writer from a very young age. And I approached stories as it, it's abstract in that you're not actually handling physical materials, but I approached stories as something that you build and deconstruct and reconstruct. And I I knew from a very early age that that was what I wanted to do. And I actually I've ended up in the business world with Ito kind of by accident because I was never passionate about entrepreneurship for its own sake, but I have been passionate about stories for a very long time. And as it turns out, telling stories takes work and compensating people for their work involves, uh, we have to figure out how to do that. And that's what we're doing at the Datekeepers. And we'll get into that later is we're Fantastic. trying to make sure that our writers are compensated for their work um, because there there is a lot of labor that goes into telling a good story. Absolutely. So um, I went to school for creative writing in Wilmington, North Carolina. And then for grad school, I went to the University of Arkansas, which is indeed where we met. And by that point, I was feeling a bit um, like the discursive environment that I was in was rather insular and, and culturally, the environment I was in was rather insular. And I really wanted to get a more global perspective. And I had studied abroad in India when I was in undergrad. So while I was in grad school, I figured out how to get myself to India for three weeks. Um, and then I went on a trip to Ghana for three weeks and I went to Egypt for three weeks and I was just trying to get a sense of what is going on in the rest of the world and how people like what sorts of stories people are telling and how and why. And I also was pretty deeply involved in the international community in Fayetteville, Arkansas, uh, which is there was a language school that also ran other sorts of programs for Fulbright mm -hmm. scholars and other international students. And I worked for them as a cultural ambassador and driver for quite a while while I was in grad school. And that was where our paths first crossed, actually. Um, we met, I think, the second day you were in the United States. I forgot about it. Yeah, she forgot about it. We, did, we didn't actually become friends. For anniversary. Um, 
course, I didn't forget about it because I heard the highlights of her story and you can't forget that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so um, I graduated in 2019 with my MFA in fiction and we were good friends by that point. And the pandemic came along shortly thereafter. I had started working in a grocery store because I was not, uh, I needed a break from the from grad school and I needed time to write, which meant that I needed a job that didn't suck away all my mental energy. So I took a job at a grocery store. I started working on a novel and then the pandemic came along and I quit my job. And uh, for the next year and a half or so, I lived on uh, mostly on beans, which actually is still how we live, although no longer for financial reasons. Now we live on beans because we healthy like them and they're really healthy. And I spent that time writing the novel. And during that time, um, we went from being friends to being in a relationship. And then I ended up moving to live with Ito in Kansas City. And here we are. And are you now married? Yes, yes. we're married. Yes. Congratulations. So I love the whole story and it's, it's international and it's romantic and it's it's purpose-driven. Ito, take us back. How Help my listeners, if you would, my audience understand what a person who is blinded, how one comes out of that. You've, you've really, you make it look like it was easy, but I can't imagine it was. So can you give us a little bit of context or the story there? Huh. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't easy. Um, you know, it's it's been a while, but also there were different things that were harder than being blinded. There was uh, the fact that I was neglected by my family and never was loved. There was the fact that I had to um, struggle financially and, and face, you know, cold hunger and all of that. So those, I think, were taking more of my energy than, you know, being blind. But of course, blindness also was hard for, I think, the first few weeks or few months. But education has powered me and it replaced the sight and it replaced everything. I fall in love with reading, writing, journalism storytelling of course I, I i was raised in an oral storytelling uh, traditional way of stories i just fall in love with journalism and technology i remember my science teacher gifted me a portable cassette radio which i fall in love with that and and i knew what i wanted to do and as i said dreams that i had to work for the un and to go to the us and that made me not forget that I am blind. I don't, of course, forget that I'm blind because I am blind, uh, but just get more, like be motivated to do things. And I had a lot of good things that I, I focused on to, like I was too distracted to focus on the negative parts of my blindness. Mm -hmm. And then later I am a very, um, I, I am a person who focus like I focus a lot on how people talk, what people say. Like it's easy for me to find out someone's way of thinking or behaving just through their words, right? Like I don't really have to see their face. That's not important. Mm -hmm. um, and one time I was in the bus and of course I went, I have that in my forthcoming memoir. It's the first chapter of the book. Um, I was, I went to an organization that took advantage of me and my story 
And I talked and they promised to pay me to do everything. And then later I ended up finding myself in a big city where I had no idea how to navigate it. Not only that I was blind, but it was my first time in a big city in Morocco, Casablanca. And on the bus, I thought of those people who worked there and how they were fighting over who's going to take what and shares and all of that. And I thought of myself and how much I overcame already by that time. And that's actually how the title of my memoir came to my mind. Blindness is the light of my life. It it doesn't, like, I don't feel like blindness has deprived me of anything. It actually has given me mm-hmm. the power to easily know what people what people's intentions are you know more blind people than i do in within the larger blind community do you have a sense of how your experience is similar or dissimilar to others i mean do people share your optimism and that can do spirit or is it very idiosyncratic i really can say because you know i know a few blind people but i think our lives shape us to do what we do and be who we are. And actually last year, while working on my memoir, I read 365 memoirs and I didn't, like I couldn't find any memoir that um, is even a little bit closer to mine, right? The first book I read was by Dave Pilzer, A Child Called It that of course he was abused by his own mother for me. My parents died, so I don't really know um, what it means to have parents, but um, I can't say that, you know, all blind people are like me or all blind people are different. Uh, I think, again, it's an individual thing, uh, but I haven't met any person who has overcome what I have overcome, which is great. I hope that there is great. It's an original story. (laughs) Of course. It's a great story. Technically, what does one have to do? Like when you're in Morocco, rural Morocco, you're blinded. There's not, I would imagine you're not going to find Braille books in the library if you even find a library. So how did you, was it just basically survival instincts initially, just finding your way to get food and water? And then how did you make your way to getting educated in the formal sense? Um, I had to ask people and go around until I found myself in the city, big city. And then, like, as I said, a taxi driver took me to the blind school. And that's how I ended up at school. Um, Of course, uh, during my time, I think now things have changed, of course. But even during my time, people like blind people who could afford technology, they still they had it. Um, There were people with, you know, their parents, their families, those who were financially good to do that. But for me, I didn't have the I, I barely got the money to eat and and drink like it was I even relied on people on the street to to give me food and all of that so um but during my middle school and high school I didn't start school from the first grade thankfully um I got my education in a span of six years instead of 12 years yay (laughs) um so I didn't need much the teachers we had a braille papers and they they uh, dictate and we typed the notes and lessons and all of that mm-hmm. but I would go to shops you know grocery shop or clothes shop or whatever and ask someone to read out loud to me and I'll be typing with my braille typewriter and I did that throughout 
my university. I had no technology. The first time I was introduced to technology was back in 2017 when I came here to the States. Wow, that's amazing. Makaya, how how do we get to date keepers? Tell me what this is, because it seems to be part of your shared purpose and what you two are doing together. Uh, we co-founded it together, and it is a media platform. It's both a family business and an international media platform. Um, and we, our mission is to tell stories that are not being told by other media outlets. And we're in the habit of saying by the mainstream media or the legacy media, but it's really not just that. We're trying to tell stories that even are not getting told in the alternate media space because, and the main reason for that is because we are resistant to telling stories that fit an ideological arc. And mm -hmm. we want to tell stories that are determined by the lives of the people who've lived them. Mm -hmm. So right now we have a few different types of stories that are showing up on our platform. We are interviewing prominent people with disabilities and advocates and allies around the world. And we're branching out from that as well, but we're just interviewing people in different countries around the world who are doing interesting work and overcoming extraordinary challenges um, in order to do that work and to put it out into the world and often are not getting the attention that they deserve. And mm -hmm. we are profiling them. We also have guest writers who are sending us op-eds, um, investigative journalism, essays, different things along the way. And as I said, we are making sure to compensate them because we understand that labor goes into that. And we are also uh, writing and publishing personal essays that deal with snapshots of our own experience and connect our condensed sections of our narrative in and connect them to mm -hmm. insights or lessons that we've learned from those. And trying not to do it in a, you know, this is what you've learned, like this is a just so story sort of way, but in a more organic way so that the reader can understand what insight we might have gained from that, but also maybe the reader gains some other insight from reading that same piece. And so all of these, at this point, I would say it's three different genres, but they're all kind of weaving together into a meta narrative, which is the evolving narrative of the date keepers. By the way, the, the name date keepers is the English translation of our last name, which, uh, which I took from Ito. I was, I was born Micaiah Walters, uh, but that was actually my mother's maiden name. Or, uh, yeah, it was her maiden name because she did not take my father's last name when she was married. And so I got my mother's last name and then I took my wife's last name. And Utini means the the one who keeps the dates. And the dates in this case is the fruit of the date palm tree. It's not the date on the calendar. Uh, Although in uh, English, the pun actually, like it, it works both ways because we do have really full calendars. So we're keeping both types of dates, um, but we also have dates in the fridge. And so that's where the name comes from. And okay. it's just the English translation of our name. And we're trying to create a space where stories can be told without having to conform to the ideological pressures, which is actually really challenging because as soon as you start to push back against one ideology, you find that you're starting to, to fall into the hands of the it's equal and opposite ideology on the other side of the political spectrum or whatever spectrum that ideology is on. So it's really a challenge to 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 resist that yeah. temptation in both directions. But that's the main thing we're we're trying to do is to so, tell the stories of individuals who are doing extraordinary work, living extraordinary lives, and are not getting the attention that they deserve. Yeah, and avoid being charged with being woke, right? Because that's the political part that people could say you're being very um, well. Any any ideology woke is we don't want to be woke, but we also don't want to be regressive. We don't. Yep. Like, and those are it's easy to fall into one of those traps or the other. Yep. So, and I think is, I'm well trained on that because with my story, um, you know, sometimes it's all like 
I, it's hard for me to tell it. And as a matter of fact, like if I get, um, you know, if, if a journalist reaches out to me, I always say, especially if it's a written, I would love to see the final, um, sure. you know, the, the yeah. final piece. Because like uh, one time they added, like they put that I started school for the first time at the age of 27. And then I was homeless for 17 years. And basically that made me, 50 something years and I was just 28. I was like, wow. <laughs> so what what's the business model? Is it uh is it become a platform and then you do public speaking and that's where you build your profit, or is it through subscription model or how does how does Datekeeper work? Um it's through subscription model. Um I am planning to host some uh webinars where I will be talking about different things. Uh mm -hmm. but yeah, for the daykeepers, it's it's subscription model. I don't like to go with advertisements because as a blind person, using a screen reader to navigate advertisements is very challenging. Ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, we have the dynamic duo, Mr. and Mrs. Utini. Ito, who was blinded at a very young age by a family member, no less, in Morocco, and her husband, Makia, who she met at graduate school, um, are talking about their advocacy today. Do you find that there are certain brands that are helpful or supportive or understanding of blindness, just to focus on one aspect of a, a disability? Are there certain corporations like to give a shout out to? Grateful to Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft um, is very uh, user-friendly to not only blind people like myself, but very inclusive for um, other uh, groups of minorities and people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And there is an app that it's uh, called Be My Eyes. And the Be My Eyes app is a 24-7 millions of volunteers where basically I can use my phone and the call a volunteer to read anything if I if I wanted to and if my husband isn't here or if it's a I'm an early bird if it's like a, a five or four a.m. and I don't really want to wake him up <laughs> so um, but the, also Microsoft they have Microsoft LinkedIn and Microsoft uh, Help so how it works is for example I am working on my LinkedIn and there's a visual content and I need help um, I called them I, I called them and we do. Uh, screen share through Quick Assist. Uh -huh. That way, uh, the Microsoft Quick Assist person um, will see what's going on on my screen and help me navigate it. Because if, for example, buttons or pictures are not label labeled or forms, or there's no way for me as a screen reader to do it, and mm -hmm. Microsoft's um, accessibility helpline um, or help through Be My Eyes. Um, help me overcome those challenges. So your advocacy is for disabilities writ large. Blindness comes to mind because you are blind, but are there certain disabilities that are more prevalent in your advocacy or anything that you might want to educate us about in terms of how you advocate for different groups? I don't want to be selective and have a certain group of people. Um, I want to tell and told stories and those of people who, you know, want to tell their story, to, to educate um, our readers. Um, and I don't have any like certain type of disabilities because like, as I said, even within disabilities, for example, blindness, 
there are a lot of type of blindness. You know, people who are visually impaired, there are people who can see light. For example, for me, I don't even have a light perception. I have a prosthetic eyes. They're eyes that the doctors made. So I don't have any vision. So I use, for example, screen reader. Uh, but there are a lot of disabilities out there mm -hmm. that I myself have, I'm still learning. The challenges that different people face, you know, there are visible and invisible disabilities. There are people with multiple disabilities. Um, according to the World Health Organization, the, the at least 15% of people worldwide identify as people with disabilities. That's, you know, that's a huge number. If one of our listeners, uh, say a corporate uh, person wants to consult with you or bring you in as a speaker or as a consultant, how what's the best way to be in touch with you? Uh, we both offer a lot of services and anyone can either reach out to us through our website, which is thedatekeepers.com or through LinkedIn. So final thoughts, pearls of wisdom. What pearl of wisdom might you have um Makia, Makia, rather, in your career and what you might suggest to young people or even older people who are looking for a, a pivot, perhaps? Well, there's that old adage, if you do what you love, the money will follow. And I don't think it's quite that simple. There's plenty of opportunities for the money to get sidetracked and lost along the way. But I do think that's on the right track, because if you're doing what you love, then you have a better chance. And if you're doing something that you hate or you're miserable, and even if the money then shows up, it doesn't make any difference because at that point you're already miserable and your life doesn't have that sense of meaning to it. So do what you love, try to figure out how to make that self-sustaining. And as an extension of that, um, there are a lot of people who want you to listen to them. Listen to the people who earn your trust. So I always listen first to Ito because she and I have established that trust. And we always listen first to like the work that we're doing and, and the mandates of that work and the people whose stories we're trying to put out into the world, because that's where we have found that there is, there, there's a source to be trusted and that circle can widen as time goes on, but don't just listen to anybody's advice or, or what people seem to want you to do. Listen to the people who earn your trust. And also, if you do what you love, then no matter what happens, you're not going to have regrets. I agree with everything that Makaya said. And um, also, if if you do what you love, it's not only that you gain a lot from it, but it's easier. It's like you're playing instead of working. Work hard. I don't believe in anything else. And ask for help, especially, you know, for someone like myself, who is you know, a person with disability or an orphan or someone who they're not connected with anyone biologically. There are people out there. And I would say to the listeners, despite of everything that they read about me and they heard the things that I overcame um, and the, th the challenges that I had to go through, I have seen in my life good people way more than bad people. There are bad people out there, but there are a lot of good people that will support us to do what we love and get rid of fear and anxiety and mm -hmm. things that, you know, self-doubt and just do the things that you think you are passionate about and, and you love. That is so awesome. <laughs> it's infectious. Ladies and gentlemen, again, I want to thank today our guests, uh, Ito Utini and Micaiah 
Utini. They are both international advocates for the disabled, particularly uh, as a blind woman, Ito, for blind folks. Um, and check out their, their organization. It's called thedatekeepers.com and see some additional or alternative types of storytelling. I hope you both come back and tell us about the launch of your memoir, Ito. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.